This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, Rolling Stone editor-in-chief Noah Schachtman on his journey from musician to national security journalist to running the most storied publication in music. And we were like, oh, well, we'll be the scream and they'll be scream and everybody will be able to know the difference. It's like, no, you're not, you fucking idiots. And um, so we, we did change the name of the band, I think after our first or second gig. Later on, the drummer for that band moved to uh, Seattle and uh, joined a band called Nirvana. And the name of that drummer is, uh, is Dave Grohl. You know, I love all my colleagues at, you know, that worked at BuzzFeed at the time, but, you know, I think that's why in retrospect, you know, publishing the Steel Dossier you know, that was a really bad call. I'm just dumb about this stuff. And I'm like, hey, I got this crazy idea. Why don't we put the good stuff at the top of the story and put the boring stuff later, or better yet, not at all. Noah Schachtman, welcome to Chatter. Hi. Um, are you between like photo shoots with Adele and lunch with a Korean boy band right now? I am. <laughs> Actually, kind of. Are you really? Is that who you're, is that we're, we're keeping waiting right now? <laughs> maybe not the boy band part maybe people writing about the boy band have you met adele yet i have not met adele because the photo shoot we did with her had to be so um like closed uh that we sent a very 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 small crew to go hang out with her so you haven't met adele who's the coolest person you've met so far you Shane. oh god see this is going to get off to such a great start despite any technical issues we may or may not have been having. Um, so for listeners who don't know, uh, they know you are the editor of Rolling Stone magazine. Yep. Uh, they probably don't know that you were twice my editor and that you cut your teeth as a national security reporter before you were running America's most iconic music journalism publication. Um, True. And in fact, I mean, I'd like to say that, uh, I mean, I'd like to think at least that, uh, you know, some of the, tricks you and I got up to or, you know, added to, uh, me getting this job eventually. <laughs> what, what was, what, what would be the number one trick? What's the thing that I, that we did together that helped you become the editor of Rolling Stone? Yeah, I don't know, but you know, I did bring up the other day, remember that time we did that story on, uh, what was it like Qatar airlines or like, uh, like UAE airlines did a, did a fucking, uh, uh, like some dog and pony show in yes and yes and you got on the plane remember this and like yes and drank, it never took off yeah and drank like literally all their booze and we called the story like my seven hundred eighty six thousand dollar flight to nowhere <laughs> yes <laughs> this was such a good story this is what we were at foreign policy together it was yeah. like it was this promo where they had like some new menu and wine service on like whatever Dreamliner, Jetliner, blah, blah, blah. And the whole event was they brought everyone to Dulles, sat us in the first class cabin, and were serving like foie gras and Chateau de Cam on a plane that never left the terminal. Yeah. That was, that's still one of my favorite junkets. That oh was good. That was awesome. That actually, and you know, that actually speaks to, I think, you know, is we, your instinct as the editor on that story was to play up the most absurd aspect of it. I mean, it was absurd, but like your idea was like, no, just go with the absurd angle, lead with that. And the story just kind of took wings, no pun intended, um, which has kind of often been your instinct, right? Is to find this sort of, you know, the, you could call it the spiciest or the most hilarious or sometimes the punchiest angle in an interview and bring that to the front and not just let that be kind of, you know, 
revealed in the course of the interview, but to really put that in front of the reader and make it about that kind of absurd or even obscure angle. Yeah, look, I've got like a 75 IQ. So like, I'm just <laughs> dumb about this stuff. And I'm like, hey, I got this crazy idea. Why don't we put the good stuff at the top of the story and put the boring stuff later? Or better yet, not <laughs> really at all. Think of that? <laughs> it's so Maybe we call it the lead. <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. Now, on the real, look, I think, you know, I think it, hopefully this is a little less the case now, but especially back then, there's just too many people swallowing the official story of whatever, whoever was pumping out the official story, whether it was Silicon Valley or some company or the Pentagon, you know, there's too many people swallowing too many official stories and, and, and kind of running with that as, as ground truth. And I think that's dangerous in any kind of reporting. It, you know, the the junk, it's kind of a ridiculous example, but it was particularly dangerous on national security reporting, right? Where, you know, uh, that was right at the height of the, um, of, of the Snowden kind of storm. And, you know, mm. we were hearing, I mean, you remember how many fucking uh, uh, sky is falling. Oh my God, the U.S. will never be able to collect intelligence again, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, pants shitting briefings we sat through and it was like, and it just all turned out to be wrong and lies. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I think, you know, one thing that, that, you know, you've done throughout your career and that, and that you and I did a lot together, both at foreign policy and then at the daily beast was just like piercing through those like baloney official narratives and trying to get at real ground truth. And, you know, I know it's been part of your work at the at the Journal and at the Washington Post, um, too. So, um, anyway, I just feel like you know, accepting the official story is almost never the right idea. Yeah, and we'll and we'll talk about that in the context of Rolling Stone too, because now you're at this publication, which is. I mean, you're interacting with some of the most famous and influential people in culture. And as I learned from my brief foray working at a magazine in Hollywood, um, these are not exactly people who uh, uh, necessarily like the most probing questions and are used to being handled and managed in a certain way. So we'll talk about that. But I just want to like start at the beginning with you because you do like it's it's. I said when you got hired for 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 this new job, I said I think the tweet that I had was something to the effect of, uh, and I was obviously very clear about my personal affection and loyalty to you, having worked with you for so many years and known you for a long time. But that there are sometimes when somebody says we've hired X person for this job, and you go, that makes all the sense in the world, and that's how I felt when you got this gig at Rolling Stone. And so I kind of want to like walk people through, I think, why that made so much sense, um, because you have a background, like you went from being a musician to being a journalist in national security and now to this position. Um, but just talk me through from the beginning. So you grew up in New York. Where did you grow up? And like, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Yeah, I grew up in New York's Greenwich Village, uh, which was uh, sort of pre-gentrification, uh, where it was more like artists and old ladies uh, sitting in their uh, fold-out chairs uh, out on the sidewalk and less, you know, fucking hedge fund dipshits um and and both the my family and my you know kid friends family uh were very much in the music business or adjacent to it so like my oldest friend when we were growing up together his dad managed uh, blondie and roberta flack 
Wow. Uh, my grandfather um, had come up running jazz clubs uh, in the 50s. And then um, when I was a kid, was more doing Broadway. I uh, was producing big Broadway shows and was uh, had a couple of venues in, in Philadelphia and New York. And so, you know, I was around that. Uh, you know, my mom uh, would brag incessantly about, uh, you know, until my ears bled about being at the Beatles White Album party. Uh, hey, you know, um, she, you know, I when I was growing up, I was a little too young for it, but I would seethe with jealousy as my uncles would get to meet, you know, Stevie Wonder or Diana Ross or whatever as they mm-hmm. played at my at my grandfather's place. So, you know, like the music was definitely. Um, was definitely uh something i grew up in and and my dad uh is a pretty good uh classical pianist uh and uh, i definitely wasn't into classical and 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 tried to take classical piano lessons and failed miserably but uh when i was 14 i desperately wanted to to start playing in bands because that seemed like the coolest thing ever and uh i got my uncle's bass guitar and um you know started learning it and and started playing in kid bands and the difference is when you're playing in kid bands in new york city in 1985 that doesn't mean you like play the you know your your eighth grade dance or whatever it means you get to go play cbgb's like Mm. legendary rock club and and so i was able like at an early age you know to play at these like iconic places um you know, sort of the story me and my buddies always love to tell is how we were too young to get into CBGBs, uh, uh, to audition there, to play there. So we had to like sneak in to play the audition and then we passed the audition. And then, you know, before too long, we were like headlining on, on Saturday nights, you know? So, um, there was, it, it was, it was just really cool. And, and so I love playing in bands and there's a great scene and like almost every single band in New York, uh, rehearsed at the same studio um and so you just got to meet a million great you know great people and great musicians and um and i did that through college too and um and you went to college in dc you went to georgetown uh, i did i went to georgetown and and you know we had a we had a band in georgetown that you know um kind of <laughs> well here, here's a funny story uh so we get this band together in, in my freshman year and and we're going to call it uh, we're going to call the band The Scream. And then we're told, no, 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 you can't do that. DC already has a famous band called Scream. It's a punk band. And we were like, oh, well, we'll be The Scream and they'll be The Scream and and they'll be Scream and everybody will be able to know the difference. It's like, no, you're not, you fucking idiots. And um, so we, we did change the name of the band, uh, I think, after our first or second gig. Uh, later on, that band, uh, the drummer for that band, uh, Scream, moved to... Uh, Seattle and uh, uh, joined a band called Nirvana, and, uh-huh. and the name of that drummer is uh, is Dave Grohl. Heard of him? Yeah, uh, so it was kind of fun. <laughs> like we we're gonna steal Dave Grohl's band name. Um, anyway, so you know we play at Nine Thirty Club and and uh, you know v- venues around town, um, and sort of did that for a while. Uh, was also in politics for a little while after graduation. You were on the Clinton campaign, right? Bill Clinton's yeah, 92 I, campaign? Yeah, I did. Um, and then uh, um, worked for the Clintons a little after um, uh, after college. And then, um, 
was in New York. Uh, after that, did some stupid jobs and uh, got fired from one of them and uh, didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I started um, freelancing a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. writing and really kind of kind of picked up on music again. And uh, luckily, all those kids I had sort of grown up with in New York, like they all had record deals uh, by the time I came back wow. and um, or a lot of them did. And so, you know, was able to kind of like slide in and 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 play with a lot of great bands, um, uh, you know, in the sort of like mid late 90s and into the 2000s. And so and I was sort of like, you know, I'd go on the road um, and then I'd I'd, I'd kind of write freelance until, you, you know, it was kind of like a side hustle when I was home. And what kind of what subjects were you writing about as you were playing? Yeah, so, well, so. uh you know, I'm a nerd, as you know. And so I was writing about technology a lot. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, these, uh, these passenger jets hit, uh, these two big buildings in my neighborhood in New York. And so I was like, Whoa, this is big, but I was so clueless as a journalist, honestly, I didn't even know how to like report on the story or do anything or mm-hmm. even go down to the fucking pile. Like I didn't even have that basic move in my arsenal. And so, um, what I did instead was just kind of, I don't I don't even remember how I stumbled on it, but I was like, huh, there are these robotic planes we're going to send after Osama bin Laden. This sounds <laughs> interesting. No one's written about those. And so I wrote this story about, I don't even know if we use the word drones. I think we might've used like disposable planes or something like that. Um, and, um, but I did that story uh, for wired.com and like everybody was like, whoa, holy shit, this is super interesting. Yeah. And so slowly over time, um, you know, I started writing more and more about the military and technology. And so by 2003, kind of on the eve of the Iraq in, uh, invasion, um, you know, I felt like I was 32 years old and it was ready to like, for me to make a choice of like music or journalism. Like, was I going to be yeah. a musician the rest of my life or was I going to really go fully into journalism? And so I said, okay, I'm doing my last tour and I'm going to just do journalism full t- full time and right. so i thought i was kissing music goodbye forever and um you know went on to, why did you make the why did you make the decision why did you pick journalism over music uh i think i was probably better at journalism <laughs> um <laughs> i'm being honest like you know uh and also it just felt like in that moment like you know what was going to change you know what was going to impact things more you know me you know, in the back of a van, you know, playing a club in Cleveland or, you know, me trying to write about stuff that seemed to be right at the center of, of world affairs. Um, so you really wanted to make a difference. I mean, you wanted your work to have a broader impact. Yeah, Shane. I mean, look, you know, we're all egotists, right? And so, <laughs> like, you know, we're not doing this just to, you know, write for ourselves. Like, we're doing it to, you know, be out there in the world. And so... right. You know. Did you feel that way as a performer too? I mean, did you like with the performance aspect of music as opposed to, I mean, in addition to obviously creating and playing music, but did the performance aspect of it appeal to you? Oh yeah. I love that. Um, I also love the, uh, uh, getting really wasted, um, uh, aspect <laughs> of it. Um, uh, I love the camaraderie too. I really yeah. love I gotta say like the thing I miss the most in some ways is, uh, is the camaraderie you have, um, when it's just, you know, three or four or five of you, 
you know, yeah. traveling around the world. It, that's, it's really special. And, you know, I think it's something, um, you know, you and I uh, have a couple of times had that in journalism and that's mm-hmm. what I've come to learn is that that's super rare, like super, super rare. And I think honestly, like today's environment is a little less conducive to that, uh, collegiality. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, but it's, it's something I really, I really do miss. Um, it's, yeah. And I, 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 as you know, my, my background in college, it was in theater and I did a lot yeah. of sketch comedy and, and you do get from journalism sometimes, particularly when it's in these smaller environments, that feeling of camaraderie, because you're collaborating, you're all working together on a goal. You care about it. It is creative. I mean, journalism is a creative profession. I think sometimes people discount that. And I can remember like in the times where, cause you and I worked together once when you were running news for foreign policy magazine and the website, and then when you went to go to the, uh, go take over the Daily Beast. And I think that, you know, at FP, like it was a much scrappier, leaner operation, which not to say like the Daily Beast was like, you know, like a you know, hundreds person's behemoth. But like when you are really kind of in the trench with somebody, um, you get more of that kind of that that feeling of like you know it's 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 you're you're highly dependent on the other person in a way that sometimes in a big newsroom the responsibilities and the burdens are spread out which is nice because you can do a lot and you have a lot of resources but it doesn't always have the same kind of intimacy yeah totally and then you know look that crucible at fp you know produced some really good reporters right it was yeah. you and me and john hudson who's now your colleague mm-hmm. at, at the washington post and dan yeah. moth who's now at the post yeah. And Gordon Lubold, who's now at, at the Wall Street Journal. So right there, you've right. got, like, you know, you know, that's like half the national security reporting in town. Um, it's pretty good. <laughs> good. And then so. Um, so anyway, so, you know, I was doing this national security reporting, you know, was able to, you know, travel a lot, as you know, um, and go to bad places and 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 do stuff like that. And, you know, obviously, like, I always loved music and, and, you know, I'd try to gig on the side and I was able to do it for a little while, you know, before my kids were born. Um, but then, um, especially I love and, you know, played a lot of reggae music and, um, and, you know, staying up till three o'clock in the morning was not exactly conducive to, uh, raising children and also having a full-time job. So I really, (laughs) the last big gig I played was, um, uh, we played with this old reggae cat named Lee Scratch Perry, um, who, who passed away recently, actually, uh, played with him at, uh, at Central Park at the big, um, stage there. And that was kind of like my last real, real gig for, you know, for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, I was just headlong into journalism and, and really, you know, never, ever, never thought I would be able to combine the two. It was like the furthest thing from my mind. Right. And, um, and then, you know, I got a call from, um, from Gus Wenner, who is the president of Rolling Stone and, and the son of the founder, uh, uh, the founders, Jan and Jane Wenner. And, um, you know, we kind of took it from there. And, um, and it, I think Gus would say this too, the, the process of interviewing and vetting and blah, 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 and negotiating took forever. It took months and months and months, but it was pretty clear to me from that first call that, um, you know, this was this was sort of meant to be yeah i think the, the the place where probably people who follow national security reporting will 
remember first encountering you was when you started and ran the Danger Room blog, which was really, I mean, this was in, and people forget this now because, I mean, blogs kind of seem like ancient history to some degree, but this was really in the early days of blogging period. And I think had to be one of the first, if not the first, like substantive and consistent blog about national security, about tech. Just talk a little bit about forming Danger Room and, and, and how that came about. Yeah, so first was in 2003, this is really super early. I started this this blog called defensetech.org. Which, right, and, right. And I did that because it sounded super fucking official, even though I was like a dipshit that didn't know what I was doing. Um, and um, like within, I'm serious, within weeks, uh, the Washington Post had called it and were like, maybe we want to buy this from you. Like, wow. yeah, it was like, it was like sort of an instant, like it scratched an inch, instant niche that, that people didn't know they had. And yeah. then, um, that kind of fizzled. And then the blog was actually bought. It's so weird, but it was bought by this company called military.com, uh, which was like an old web play where they'd put up military related content and then try to like sell you shit. Like it was, yeah, all- that sounds like somebody else who like quick grab the URL. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, the people who ran it were super smart. And then they sold that to um, Monster, the job site. I know. Oh, yeah. It's super weird. Anyway, so I was doing a little, I was doing some writing for Wired on the side. And then eventually, basically, they they had me recreate um, Defense Tech, but under a new name. Um, and we came up with, uh, I'm a comic book guy. And so we used the, the name of the... Um, the kind of uh, a training room in in the x-men called danger room which and that name sounds you know super cool um mm-hmm. and so we started that and that was started out with a woman named sharon weinberger who um is currently running yahoo's dc bureau and is an amazing national security journalist yeah she's, um, she's terrific yeah and i would note probably the only seems to be the only reporter in town that um has like treated the Havana syndrome stuff with enough skepticism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anyway, uh, she she and I met at this is so awesome. We met at a directed energy weapons conference. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> given the given the Havana syndrome connection, which people think is maybe the result of a directed energy weapon. All right, go continue. Yeah, and in fact, at this conference that Sharon and I went to. There was some Yahoo who was um, pitching a quote unquote voice of Allah weapon in which they were going to project microwaves into someone's head and tell them that, you know, God wanted them to stop attacking U.S. forces or whatever. Um, Wow. Yeah. Um, So anyway, so we met a directed energy weapon conference and that's how i met my work wife <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so then we started danger room together and mostly because of sharon but a little bit because of me we had like a we had like a big story right away which was um uh it's long and convoluted but basically we got a, we got a hold of this document that that showed that um the marines were asking for these like super armored up vehicles in iraq and that the request was kind of sat on or turned down. Um, USA Today had a piece of it. We had a piece of it. Anyway, it was a big fucking deal. Uh, it became they became these things called mine resistant armor protective vehicles or MRAPs. The mm-hmm. Pentagon wound up 
after reading our stories, wound up buying like billions and billions of these things. Um, and they proved to be a, a real, um, you know, technological, technological advantage in the war yeah. in Iraq. And, um, so anyway, and we were kind of off the races from there. And so, um, you know, I did that from, um, while writing features, I did that from, uh, 2007, I think it was seven, 2007 sounds right. Maybe it was 2006, mm-hmm. uh, to 2013. And then, you know, you and I hooked up at foreign policy for a while and then, at, and then at the beast and, and, and then over here at Rolling Stone. Yeah. I remember in those early days of blogging, there was this great concern, I think, largely among people who'd been in journalism for a long time, that blogs valued voice over experience or opinion over actual reporting. But one of the things that, I mean, you did at Danger Room that I have to say, like, I think very few people were doing it well at the time, was that it had a voice and it had like an attitude and a posture, but it had real reporting. And it kind of seemed to me that this was you know, an early test case of like, you can do both. I mean, yes, there were plenty of blogs that were basically just more like opinion columns and sometimes people opining on things that they really didn't know anything about, uh, but just doing it very forcefully. And you guys, like, it seemed like with Danger Room and, and really everything you've done, but like, you were not trying to like, there was no trade-off. It's like, it, it could be edgy and it could have a voice and a punch, but it had to have real information and real news. Thank you. I have nothing to add to that. There you go. <laughs> so when you went over- I think there were two- like at that same time, guys like Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias um, were doing blogs too. And it's kind yeah. of like those, there are two different paths you could go by. You could go by the like, don't know shit about shit and just have a bunch of opinions about something and present those arguments so forcefully that people would start to believe you. And maybe they were even right or who knew. And that was kind of like the Ezra and, and Matt um, approach. And then, you know, for me, like, you know, I felt so underwater in my subject matter that I felt like the only way to kind of like get my head above water was to, was to, you know, report through it, um, you know, and, and kind of like learn, you know, get to know people. Now, look, am I, I'm sure I haven't looked back at those stories, but I'm sure some of them are cringe, man. You know, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. I'm sure we took the official line either too seriously or, you know, especially on the technology front, maybe we're, you know, too bullish on certain kinds of technology or whatever. I, I'm just making stuff up, but like, sure. I even looked, um, you know, but I do have, um, you know, from those days I've got my, like a first cover story I wrote, um, for the village voice on, um, that, that still holds up, which was about, you know, what then seemed like fantastical, which was, you know, networking groups of surveillance cameras and being able to track individuals across, um, you know, surveillance camera networks and being able to do face ID and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. spot somebody, you know, consistently um, as they move from place to place. And, and that seemed very dystopian at the time and very fantastical, but obviously like that's now like, yeah, no duh. Um, yeah, exactly. There, well, there's so many, there's so many stories from those, that era too, that I think at the time, people had a hard time wrapping their head around it and they weren't really ready to even conceive of how something like this would work. And, you know, I, I think when the Snowden files dropped, one thing I was very confused by, and we were working together at foreign policy, like literally as this was, those were breaking, I was coming over there to work with you on the news side. And I had written a book 
like two or three years earlier about right. surveillance. You and I had both been covering it. And I'm like, why is everybody acting like this is new? Uh, and this is somehow a revelation. And I think it was that the general public had just become sophisticated and savvy enough about technology that when the story was presented to them, they said, oh, I understand how this works. And, ooh, this is troubling or this is uh, something I want to know more about. I mean, did you feel that way, too? Like the story, like it was like the world had to catch up a bit to be ready for the gravity of what those documents told us. Yeah, well, I just think, I mean, first of all, in general, there's like beat reporteritis, right? Which is like, you know, stuff in such fine grained detail that sometimes you miss, like when there's a big, or not miss, but you know, it, it, it you don't feel the impact of a big story. Yeah, you underappreciate it. Yeah. 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 So um, there's that part. And then, you know, look, I think that stuff is still, you know, there's still cycles of it going on. You know, it's like, I feel like, you know, you and I were like, jumping up and down talking about how crazy um the amount of data we were giving to google and facebook was and i feel like that's you know that's still like um an ongoing you know people seem to wake up to it like every few months um, right you know um i remember you know with drones like again jumping up and down being like guys this tech isn't that sophisticated like everybody's like this is going to proliferate everywhere yeah are you sure about this like positive and and you know whatever law we know um and so i mean I, yeah i mean i just think that's that's part of it that's all part of the um the cycle especially when you're covering more like technology related subjects um you know do you think that do you think that we as an industry, looking back like in that 2013-2014 period when NSA was so front and center in the news, did we put too much emphasis on the concern over the government having large amounts of personal data or access to data and not enough on social media companies having it? Um, well, first of all, I mean, look, uh, as uh, who is it? Uh, um, was it Clapper or one of those guys? uh said once you know i mean the government will kill people based on metadata right and yeah. will arrest people based on data and will right. and metadata and data so i mean you know look facebook um or, or google is not going to kill you uh at least you know not in one fell swoop uh so you know i think there's an appropriate amount of, of emphasis there i think where we probably missed the mark a little bit was i think we sort of portrayed uh uh, we either portrayed the technology companies as kind of uh, victims of, a, of an oppressive government or of accomplices of that oppressive government without properly or without interrogating enough. I think we did some, but without enough of like, wait a minute, these big technology companies are like independent and often malevolent actors in their own right. And, and, um, you know, we got to pay attention to that. I think at the time it felt more like, you know, the privacy dangers were more framed around ad targeting and like, or, you know, that kind of stuff. And it sort of seemed like, well, who cares if they know I like a, um, you know, I prefer a blue chiffon pants rather than blue jeans, you know, like mm -hmm. it, it seemed the, the stakes seemed lower. And I think it was only, you know, again, you know, when you and I were working on, on the, the Russian disinformation campaigns of, of 2016 that like the, the stakes suddenly seemed like went from kind of 
ephemeral to enormous. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I, I'm just having a flashback now to, I remember the day that, because I was working with you at The Beast, and it was the day that the uh, uh, the first, the, the, the IC came out and confirmed <clears throat> that Russia was behind the election interference. Uh, the grab by the pussy tape dropped yeah. and the and the Hillary Clinton emails all came out on the same day. Was that all and I can remember day? oh my god. It was it was all the same day. I was in LA at a conference thinking like I'd found this nice little like quiet window to go to a cool conference. And I remember like sitting in the auditorium listening to a panel and seeing this blow up and like communicating with you and like having to file and it was just absolutely nuts i mean it was one of the nuttiest days that's so but i turn the clock back a little bit my favorite memory this is so telling on myself but whatever i don't care is uh whatever that was like july of 2016 and so and um there was like you know the the first like russia fbi you know russia um interference stuff was starting to break and I was, oh yeah 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 i was at this security conference in aspen colorado that we were i think we were both in aspen actually wouldn't we bet yeah i yeah. don't know. well anyway point being unlike you i was enjoying the fruits of colorado's then relatively rare uh legal weed <laughs> And I remember being like, yo, this story's blowing up, but I am too fucked up to go confirm it. Shane, can you and Nancy Youssef, who we were working with at the time, can you like can you guys go track this down? Cause like I cannot show up, you know, with these like, you know, I can't go to the head of the FBI or whatever this stone. <laughs> Your pupils the size of quarters and be like, hey man, it's fucked up what these Russians did, right? Yeah, bro. <clears throat> wow. Wow, yeah. I don't think I ever knew that that was maybe like why you were indisposed on that. No, day, no, 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 no. That's that's why I think you're making. No, I was pretty clear about it at the time. I was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's it. But it is kind of crazy to like think back on that period as being. I feel, and this often happens in journalism, but. I feel like we were all so innocent then, you know, when it came to like the idea that like, whoa, somebody, the Russians have broken into a political organization's servers and they're going to leak all the emails. One thing, and this, this gets to the question of like, like, you know, the postmortems. I wonder too, what do you think about the criticism <clears throat> that, the, that the press focused too much on the content of Hillary Clinton's emails and not enough on the fact that the Russians were leaking them in order to try and um, sway people's opinions in an election in which, you know, we have a history of not allowing foreign governments to interfere in our election, like that we missed the big story. And what, what's your sense of like how the industry performed there? Well, I don't know about we. I know you and me didn't do that. Right. You know, I think there's a lot. We of, had many of those conversations, in fact. Yeah. yeah, because it was like, you know, I think because you and I had been covering hacking and, and covering you know, kind of info ops for a long time, we kind of knew what the score was. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, you covered the Hillary email, but what we were trying to cover was like, what was a, a, either A, what was of substance in there, B, what was her secure, like, had she done anything security risk? And then, yeah, we, you know, we were handling those really gingerly because it was pretty clear that like, you know, DC leaks or whatever was some kind of foreign op. And so, you know, I thought we did okay on that. Um, you know, the we, you and me 
part of it. But yeah, no, there was a lot of, I think in some ways, because right there, we were coming on off the heels of some really big and really substantive uh, hacks that, or, or, you know, like sort of mass document dumps, right. That like had done really important, you know, that, that kind of like trolling through those, those dumps had been like hugely important and there'd been so many good nuggets of information in there. Yeah. And I think it kind of like gave us bad, there gave the industry a little bad training on, on, on the Hillary stuff, you know, for example, the year before, um, you know, there's those Sony hacks. Remember those? Sure. Of course. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, we would go through those and, and, you know, these aren't like world shaking entertainment store, uh, world shaking national security stories, but they're hugely important in the entertainment world where like, you know, I remember at the beast, we broke the news off the Sony hacks that Jennifer Lawrence was being paid like half as much as her male colleagues. And that was like in the entertainment world, that was a world shaking story. You know, that was like, and has led to all kinds of, um, um, you know, pushes for, for, for pay equity and, and what have you. And so I think we're a little bit more used to like, um, you know, those documents being important in the contents, uh, rather than the, the kind of, um, meta contents. And I think that we, you know, uh, I, I, it sounds like we're like patting ourselves in the back for all the great work we did together here, but I want to talk too about some of the Trump Russia stories in yeah. this context. I particularly want to talk about a story that you and I didn't publish. Yeah. <laughs> um, if that's okay, I think you remember which one I'm talking about, but yeah. because we've talked about this. Well, it's kind years, of like but... there's two related ones, right? Well, the one I'm thinking of, and this is a way to get into like, you know, the broader coverage too, but it was the whole question of whether or not a server at the Russian bank, Alpha Bank, was communicating with a server owned by the Trump organization and whether the communications were meaningful and signaled possibly even that there was some like, you know, weird like red line or phone line between the Kremlin yeah. and Trump Tower, right? And, you know, for listeners, I mean, I spent weeks, I think, you know, researching that story, constantly I feel like it was a, like it was was a solid it. month you were on that story. Yeah. It was a long time running that story down. And when we came up with it at the end, it was just like, there's a lot of interesting stuff here and none of it is conclusive. It definitely does not prove that Trump was communicating with the Russians. Uh, this could just be just, you know, this it was all DNS data. It was sort of like, you know, interesting, but it was not anything definitive. And we ultimately decided like this story is not baked and we should not run it. It did eventually break and has never really held up, but like that's a moment where we, I think we had to step back and say like, look, this is potentially an explosive story, but like, we just don't believe that this is actually um, provable. And we made the choice not to run it and others didn't. Others made the choice to go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, so that story was being shopped around to a lot of places. Let's be fair. Yes. And um, I think, you know, we, you and I were not the only people to pass on that story. Let's also be mm -hmm. fair, but you know, we ran it down and, and if memory serves, Shane, I think we came away saying that the data we had been shown was indistinguishable from spam. Wasn't that right? That yes. Was, right. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. Yeah, well, if we can't tell the difference between that and spam, then, then we're not, you know, we can't do this. Um, because if memory serves, the, the source was presenting this slice of data, but not the whole thing. And, and without the context, you couldn't tell what it was anyway. Yeah. Then they got some, you know, they got some dummy, I think at slate, to um, 
to run with it, and it became a big thing. And and honestly, you know, stories like that actually wound up only helping uh, Trump, right, and helping the Russians because it was like it was a story that was knocked downable, and so it could kind of like quote unquote disprove any connections between, um, you know, the the Russians favoring. Um, Trump and, and, you know, it, it was kind of like a way to disprove that, um, which it wasn't, but you know, it was just like bad stories like that actually wind up serving, uh, the targets, uh, rather than damaging them. Um, then the other one I, that I, I mean, I thought you were going to mention was, I remember we, we didn't have the document, but we sure had heard about this crazy, um, uh, file, uh, Mm -hmm. on, uh, on Trump that it was accusing him of, a, of being a foreign agent. And um, we're kind of like, yeah, we heard these whispers. And then, you know, and then stories came out, they were sort of publishing these whispers and we were like, what the fuck? This is so irresponsible. Like, you know, to just sort of say someone was going to be shopping around. And then the thing that you and I didn't work on, but me and our entertainment wor- editor worked on was, you know, we had, um, you know, we had an on the record source about Trump and Stormy Daniels, um, mm. but it was only a single source. And and we didn't feel like that source was completely trustworthy. And so the source saying that they had an, they had a sexual affair. Yeah. And um, and Stormy was going to talk to us. And then at the like 59th minute of the 11th hour backed out because um, she wanted to get paid. And we were like, no, we're not paying our sources. Um right. And so, and that made us feel shady about the whole thing. So yeah, there's a bunch of stories we didn't run. Um, and I'm really glad we didn't, you know, and I think in retrospect, you know, I love all my colleagues at, um, you know, that worked at Buzzfeed at the time, but, you know, I think that's why in retrospect, you know, publishing the steel dossier as is and kind of throwing up our hands and saying, oh, well, we don't know if this is real or not, but it's sure making the rounds, you know, that was a really bad call. Uh, I also think in retrospect, look, Comey uh, briefing the president on on this and or briefing the incoming president, Trump, and kind of, I think, you know, in retrospect, that feels a little bit like a put up job, not a, uh, you know, not a responsible disclosure. And, so, you know, Comey saying like, hey, dude, there's this file on you. Uh, watch out. You know, that feels I know Comey thinks of himself as the, you know, six foot 11 boy scout, but that doesn't feel like a boy scout move in retrospect. And so I just think the whole way information was handled, uh, back then, you know, there's a lot of really important stuff coming out, you know, and a lot of information that was like vital to both national security and to our politics. But then there was a lot of bullshit that was being sloshed around that I think, um, made it harder to get at that real, um, substantive, important, you know, game changing information. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, and this is, this is, it's an important part of the conversation because I think that a lot of people, when they see big stories running in the press and particularly when they see them, you know, at a time, you know, in digital media, in which it seems like they're, everyone is rushing to be first and then to get the, the sharpest head on it. They can overlook the fact that there is a lot of painstaking work that's going on behind the scenes and moments where people just step away and maybe you say, crap, we're maybe passing on a really good story here. But the risk that we take to our own reputations of publishing something that's wrong is prohibitive, A. And B, like we're not going to publish something that we can't prove. And I think this is, you know, to your point about 
what sometimes just gets, which, which doesn't really pass muster, but gets published anyway, it does embolden those people who would come out and say the press just makes things up and you can't yeah. believe anything you read because so much of it just proves just kind of falls apart. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean um, every story, right. You know, like, you know, no, of course not, you know, you can play a hand of poker properly and still lose, but you know, you got to at least play it properly. And so look, I think, you know, for listeners out there, um, you know, just know that like every big story, there's usually huge drama behind it and huge um, moments of like, wait a minute, should we be publishing this? Do we have enough? Are we sure about this one? That happens right. every big story. There's that moment of like, oh my God, are we sure, sure, sure we've got enough here? Totally. Totally. Well, and I want to say this transitions nicely into like what you're doing now at Rolling Stone, because I think that, you know, probably, I mean, Rolling Stone has a history of deep, probing, provocative journalism. I mean, it was the home for Hunter S. Thompson, for God's yeah. sake. Um, so it's not as though somebody who comes from your background of doing investigative work and, you know, and like high speed and digital and policy and substantive like would be out of place. I mean, running a publication like this, I think it makes all the sense in the world, as I said. But you've signaled also like very early on, and this gets back to what we talked about in the beginning about celebrities who like to be managed, is that you are taking an approach to covering people who are not used to having critical coverage of them. Um, you're taking the same approach, it seems to me, that you would have applied to public officials when you were working at FP or Daily Beast. And um, you told my Washington Post colleague, Margaret Sullivan, your quote was, we are 100% going to shine a light on bad actors and that you wanted Rolling Stone to stand apart from much of entertainment journalism, which, quote, tends to be either fawning and borderline embarrassing or pure gossip. Um, and I think the first story that put you guys on the board is like living up to that promise is the piece that you did in the invest in the journalism you've done on Eric Clapton and his support for anti-vaxxers. So talk to me about how that story got started. Yeah. So look, I thought it was important for a number of reasons to come out of the gate, um, shining a light on a, on a, um, uh, on a, on a bad actor who n not only someone who's a bad actor in the music business and look, I'm not telling you or any of your listeners, anything you don't know, but there's like a lot of bad people in the music business. There just are, you know, it, it attracts them. And so, you know, I thought it was important that we, we kind of um, expose one of them early on and that, that the first one we do was someone that wrong son had celebrated in their past. You know, I thought that was important, too, because, you know, look, uh, here at the Rolling Stone offices, we've got this uh, sort of wall that digitally displays all of the covers um, going back, you know, 50 plus years. It's super yeah. cool. But, you know, you look at some of the people on those covers and you're like, yikes, um, <laughs> those were not great people. Now, look, to be fair, Rolling Stone had a history of reexamining uh, some of its heroes. And so I think it was in 2018 or 19, um, they did a big expose on Johnny Depp, which really, you know, turned around perceptions of him. And he is someone that had been on several Rolling Stone covers. So it's not like Rolling Stone hadn't done this in the past. But I think with the start of a new editor, I just thought it was important to kind of go after someone, um, you know, big and prominent. And, you know, we knew, you know, if you're a rock fan, a real rock fan, you know that 
Eric Clapton's got this past of of saying some pretty racist stuff, like crazy racist stuff. But even I was shocked at how bad it was, like, and and just how how many like holy shit racist statements he had made over the years. So we had a reporter that was digging into that, um, and uh, and uh, and and he also dug into the his anti-vax stuff, and and he found that um, that uh, you know Clapton wasn't just like spouting anti-vax talking points, but had actually been funding the this group of anti-vax protesters, um, and they were up to the. This is a good example of something you got to deal with in journalism. Is they were insisting up until the like 59th minute of the 11th hour that they were not anti-vax and that all they were were freedom of choice and that they, you know, they had no problem with vaccines and, you know, they just wanted people to have the option not to take it. And then we found this video of them like singing, you can take this vaccine and shove it up your ass. Wow. <laughs> it's like, wow. That sounds anti-vax. <laughs> and like a whole bunch of other stuff. And, you know, these guys were just lying, like up right up until, um, right up until the end. And so, you know, we were able to do a classic magazine trick of like going back through, um, and looking hard at history and kind of summing up lots of data points that we knew, get some news up at the top and, and we were able to publish that. And, and that was great. And it was a good statement for us. Um, and, and, and it was particularly sweet because, uh, found out later that the your paper, the Washington Post, had been working on a on a similar story, and um, and so it was nice to beat you guys uh, right out of the gate. <laughs> and how were Eric Clapton's people? Were they surprised that Rolling Stone was asking these aggressive questions? Not entirely, because um, we had been doing some day to day reporting on um, on Clapton, and and you know he had sort of uh, made some statements uh, about how. He didn't want to play anywhere with a va- with a hard vaccine mandate and stuff like that. So we were reporting on that, and Clapton had actually even before the big story came out, Clapton was like ranting on on Facebook about us. Um, so so no, and in fact, I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong, but I don't think it wasn't until um, <laughs> it wasn't until uh, uh, Clapton, who again, I should just. Note, Clapton still claims he's not anti-vax, right? <laughs> but he went on uh, the podcast of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the world's most prominent anti-vaxxer, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, who also claims he's not anti-vax, um, to sure. complain about us. And that was like a ma- month after the story. And I think that was the first time he said anything after the big story. Yeah. How do you separate now going forward to, and this, this, I think this is a question that has really become when we all talk about in, in the era of Me Too, how do you separate Eric Clapton and his music, which is, I think everyone agrees, is a gigantic contribution to, to culture and is wonderful and many of us love it a lot and have for years, from the individual Eric Clapton and, and the kinds of things that he is advocating that are arguably detrimental to public health. Like you as an editor now who has to make these decisions about how, what you cover, how you balance your coverage, how do you distinguish between these realities, which are just basic human facts? We all have contradictory aspects of our personality, but you've got to grapple with this now as an editor. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things. First of all, I mean, I think Clapton's music is overrated. Um, and this is going to be the headline of the podcast, man. Yeah. Right there. Well, I mean, look, and Clapton in '68 told Rolling Stone, <laughs> I, like, said so much racist stuff about Jimi Hendrix that I can't even repeat it on wow. this podcast. Yeah, uh, but like, you know. Yeah, I think Clapton's kind of overrated. Um, he played in some good bands, but he himself is a little wrong. Um, uh, and also, you know, look, in this case, right, like some of his past behavior actually plays into some of his art, right? There's a guy that mm-hmm. like, spent his whole life like pretending to be the avatar of, of, of blues, which is, you know, inherently a black art form while mm-hmm. talking shit about black people. You know, mm-hmm. this guy's biggest hit for so many years was a Bob Marley cover while he was talking shit about black people. Like, I feel like in his case, like the art and the, and the, and the, and the actions are, are linked in a way that it may not always be. Um, Hmm. but look, we're going to try to treat those things. We're going to try to treat, um, the artist and the person as separate when we can, you know, if one has nothing to do with the other, so be it. And then sometimes we'll treat it together when we when we can and so you know a good example of together is the our other big expose so far um it, it was on marilyn manson and you know marilyn manson has had this like you know shock persona and and you know this kind of like you know evil lyrics and you know since the jump and there was an example of of people saying well that's just his persona that has, you know, that's just his art. It has nothing to do with who he is as a human. And it turned out it had everything to do with who he was as a human. And this guy was, you know, has been accused of, uh, of, of, of abuse and, and torture and, and worse over the decades. And he would sing about it too. And everybody was like, Oh, ha ha ha. He's just a, he's just a prankster. He's just trying to get our goat. We won't fall for that. We are too sophisticated for that. And it turned out, no, he was just singing about his reality. Um, so I think you can go. So I think it's important when warranted to se- separate the art from the artist, but it, sometimes you, you can't be like too clever by half, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. those things go together. How do you feel now about Michael Jackson and his legacy? That's a tough one, man. That is a really tough one. Um, you know, I, personally, I'm still wrestling with it. And, you know, it freaks me out. You know, I remember, I don't know when it was, like a year or two ago. And, you know, one of my kids was singing Man in the Mirror. And, you know, he's like a, you know, seven-year-old boy or something like yeah. that. And it freaked me the fuck out. I don't know. I'm still wrestling with it, to be honest. Yeah. And I think there aren't, it's, it's got, it's probably case dependent and specific. But I think one of the things you're getting at here that's interesting is it seems like you are very much in favor of, of, asking how the person's beliefs and personality affect their art and influence it. And that is completely fair game as a subject for journalism. Um, yeah. I, I certainly think that's true, but that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, totally. And I think also we want to be careful about like, um, you know, if, if people are doing non-political art, right. Even though they may, or if, if they're doing stuff that is more neutral to their personality, like we got to, that requires a, a, a different kind of treatment than someone who's like, you know, Marilyn Manson, who's like talking about torturing people in his songs right. and then was torturing people in real life, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Seems highly relevant. Yeah. Um, 
in the few minutes we have left, uh, since since you're feeling spicy, um, all right, most underrated and most overrated musician of the past twenty years, or maybe not most, but just who comes to mind? Wow, 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 man, that is tough. I have a secret. <laughs> I had a formerly secret love for this band, The Hives, who uh-huh. I feel like never quite got their due. And I feel like in that era of like the strokes and the vines and stuff like that, the hives were like by far the best of that band uh, of that era. And I feel like never got their due. So I I feel like they're kind of criminally underrated and underappreciated. I also feel like there's an era that's kind of now passed uh, a little bit, unfortunately, but in the like 2014 to 17 era like the music coming out of jamaica right then um of um artists like protege uh chronics uh kabaka pyramid and folks like that has been like criminally overlooked and should be like the biggest pop music in the world um so that's some overlooked artists um uh would you say the other one was like overhyped or like yeah, or is there like a genre that's just it was just played out? You think it was a look back and say, God, what were we thinking? I mean, there's always there's tons of those. Oh Which one God. stands out to you? Holy cow! I mean, it's almost like there's too much of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's almost like there's too much of that. And look, I mean, I think one of the dangers you can have in this job here, and I think one of the things I'm gonna I'm gonna try to fight against is confusing popularity in the moment with good right you know what i mean right and so um and so w- i'm gonna try my hardest to celebrate artists who are and you know put artists on the cover who are both good and speak to a wide audience yeah, yeah. But, and, and and i think like in the era of the pandemic now too i i feel like people's relationship with music has probably changed profoundly um people are going back to live music events now that's yeah. people, friends of mine who go to concerts. This has been one of the things that they have been so missing in their life. And they're so glad that it's back. Do you think about how the pandemic has affected people's relationship with music or, or is, is it, does it feel more like when it comes to what you guys cover and how you think about artists that this was just a rough period and we got through it and maybe music helped a lot. And now we're just kind of, you know, moving on from it. Yeah. I don't think about it quite the way you did, but, um, but I, but I've definitely noticed that like, you know, music that, that gives you the feels and, and, and really, you know, that you can, you know, cry with and, and cry to and, and you can, and you can dance around in your underwear too and, and feel joyous. Like that feels particularly um, precious uh, in this moment. I thought, um, Rolling Stone, this predates me, but I thought Rolling Stone did a really nice piece on Dua Lipa, um, mm. uh, maybe like nine, 10 months ago, uh, you know, sort of expressing that. I think you also see like, you know, the um, huge and very well justified reception for um, for uh, Taylor Swift's, uh, you know, reimagined Red uh, album um, and just, you know, how much emotion is poured into that. Um I think some of that has a has a has a pandemic um, fuel to it. Um, yeah. And then look, we like 
all of us at Rolling Stone, like we a can't wait to get back to live music and b are like watching like a hawk to make sure that it's done safely. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we did a bunch of reporting uh, over the summer, sort of before I got here, but on on um, on you know spread of COVID at, at certain uh, big events. Uh, and, you know, COVID policies at, at certain big events. And then, you know, we're reporting the shit out of um, what's going to be a, you know, a really ongoing story, which is the um, tragedy at the Astroworld concert in Houston, where I believe now 10 people uh, have died as a result of their it's injury. awful. Yeah, really awful. And, you know, um, and, you know, to what degree uh, the promoter, uh, the sort of artist and, and artistic director, uh, Trev Scott, um, the Houston PD, you know, and many others were responsible, you know, we're still uh, getting to the bottom of, um, but, you know, R- Rolling Stone in a lot of ways, it's, it, some of its best journalism ever was in the aftermath of um, similar tragedies, whether it was at Altamont uh, mm-hmm. or the Who concert in Cincinnati uh, uh, or the Roskilde uh, um, uh festival in the 2000s and and so you know we see this as kind of hip-hop's ultimate moment and we're going to treat it as such yeah that seems to make perfect sense um all right our tradition on chatter is our very last question comes from the box the chatter box that i hold in my hands right here which you'll have to trust me it's real i'm going to pull a previously written question at random and then i'm going to ask it to you and that'll be our last question right on Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use now. If you could reanimate. Wow. Oh, man. Honestly, God, this is so funny because, you know, after college, you know, I quit college to unseat this guy. But Mm -hmm. man, I feel like we could use a George H.W. Bush figure right now. Uh Uh-huh. You know. And he, I don't share his politics or his worldview necessarily at all, but somebody who was like a, like a coalition builder, um, who, you know, was basically somebody who, 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 who talked sense and who had, had a bit of decency to him, mm-hmm. even, yeah. And, and yeah. kind of like, you know, was small C conservative in the, in the, in the best sense, I feel like our politics could really use um, a guy like him right now because it feels like, you know, all we've got are these kind of like, you know, r- right now it's like, you know, mushy liberals, you know, fiery leftists and, you know, neo-fascists. And it feels like those are like our three like kinds of politics, right? You know, like strange yeah. politics right now. And we could use like a real kind of like old school internationalist uh, in this moment. I guess the other person I'd say is, you know, Ike for the same reason. Um, yeah. And it's so funny, man, because like these are not people like I would necessarily like politically align with. Right. Exactly. Well, I guess, you know, the other ones I would say are like, you know, I feel like we could use like a like a David Ben-Gurion type who mm-hmm. um, who could um, speak to the aspirations of the Middle East without um, getting into the kind of necessarily some of the ugly tribalism uh, there, you know, could, could elevate the conversation. I feel like we could really use, you know, in a time of 
of, um, you know, rising neo-fascism around the world. You know, I feel like we could use an FDR type too, who could really speak to our, you know, make the, the, the forceful case, um, for anti-fascism. I feel like that's, that would be great. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's about it's about temperament too with so many of these people that I feel like is what we've lost now as well. I mean, I think of like George H. W. Bush, you know, not dancing on the grave of the Soviet Union when you could imagine any American president would have felt perfectly within their rights to do, and he didn't. Uh, and yeah. I think he even got some criticism for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or not not taking the bait and, and chasing Saddam uh, after the Gulf War. Um, you right. know. There's that. <laughs> yeah, my old man, who's a who's a book author and who uh, for a while had met a bunch of the presidents in a row. I know he had met um, Carter and and um, and Reagan and um, and George H W and I and I think Clinton too. And my old man always said that H W was the smartest of the lot. And mm-hmm. and and my dad, to be clear, co-wrote a book with Jimmy Carter. So it's not like you know he was. He was um, he wasn't in the in the in the tank for HW, but anyway, uh, yeah. yeah. So I I feel like that's someone we miss, um, um, you know. And then I feel like right now, um, also just journalistically, like we just need to really we're going to really need some really fierce national security reporting coming up really fierce. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's going to have to be, you know, super skeptical of, of both of government sources of international sources. Um, and it's going to have to be fiercely non-ideological really fiercely. And, and, um, uh, you know, too many people have taken, have, taking the partisan bait on national security reporting and are, are trying to come up with stories that, that confirm their, their biases, whether it's around, um, you know, this fucking Wuhan lab, uh, stuff or whether it's around, you know, whatever Putin's up to on the edges of Ukraine, there's just, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really big issues that I think we're sort of like allowing our national security reporting to fall into camps. And I think, we just got to we got to get at some really aggressive ground truth. And I, and I have a feeling that, you know, Biden's going to be increasingly tested on the world stage over the next couple of years. And that, you know, the the confluence of, of foreign, inter, you know, f- foreign interests in the 2024 campaign is going to be like completely off the charts. Um, and so, you know. I, that, that's what, you know, I'd say that the, some more of that is on my wish list, too. Yeah, I think it's going to be, um, I think you're right, 2020. I hope we're remembering the lessons that we've learned and politics kind of, national security used to stop at the water's edge when it came to politics. These streams have blended in a way that is, in the past four or five years, that is totally alien to me as a national security reporter and probably the way you grew up too. And I think maybe it's it's time to get back to basics. All right, my friend, Noah Schachtman, editor-in-chief, Rolling Stone, Great American, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you taking your time out of um, 
you know, lunch with uh, uh, Eric Clapton's publicist and telling him, you know, why you don't actually hate him. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, say hi to Adele for me, okay? Okay, will do. I'll right. ask to take it easy on you. <laughs> oh, very nice. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs> <laughs>